This episode of Santa Cruz Local is sponsored by UC Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz is proud to help lead the international team that produced the first complete gapless sequence of a human genome. With this effort, UC Santa Cruz is supporting important advancements to understand genetic diseases, human diversity, and evolution. UC Santa Cruz, the real change is us. The Davenport Resource Services Center is tucked on a hill. I can see and hear the ocean from here. Across the street is an old church. Beyond that is farmland. It's a sunny Tuesday afternoon in March. There's a line forming on the patio. People, mostly women, are waiting for groceries. Some have toddlers in tow. Workers stack bags of fruit, vegetables, cereal, and tortillas on tables by the front door. Nearby, clothes and toys are piled on tables to give away. The woman you hear is a Davenport resident. She's 74. She and her husband have lived and worked on a Davenport ranch for decades. They're retired, but still live on the ranch. She wants a stable home to enjoy their retirement. Our interpreter is Oscar Rios. We have been living for 45 years. Work, work, work in the fields all the time. My husband, his eyes are, are, are um, um, injured. His back is injured of working so much there. And we don't have, we have nothing. We have no money to get, a, to go get housing or anything. The woman has asked us not to share her name. The ranch was recently sold. She's trying to work out a lease with a new owner. Her home is at risk. For decades, she and her husband were housed by their employer. In the 1980s, her husband made $2 an hour. When he retired about four years ago, he made $10 an hour, she says. As a result, their Social Security payments are very low, she says. It's their sole income. She's a registered voter in Davenport. In June, voters will choose a new county supervisor to represent the North Coast and most of Santa Cruz. I asked her what she wants the candidates to talk about as they compete for her vote. Help for poor families and seniors, she told me. Her family's income and benefits cannot cover their medical bills, she says. Also for seniors again. Senior, she's a senior, so it's also we need we need housing. To pay a rent today is so expensive, and, and with the money that we make Social Security, it's not enough. It's just not enough. I'm Kara Myberg Guzman. This is Santa Cruz Local. In today's episode, we'll learn what Santa Cruz and North Coast residents want from the District 3 County Supervisor candidates. We'll also meet the three candidates in that race. We'll press them on the priorities we heard from you. District 3 includes Davenport, the North Coast, and most of the city of Santa Cruz. This seat is now held by Ryan Coonerty. He's not running for re-election. This race is for one of five seats on the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. 
In the June 7 primary election, voters in this district will choose from the three candidates. This race is important because the Board of Supervisors makes local laws and policies for areas outside the four cities in the county. They're in charge of things like county roads, county fire protection, public health, the sheriff's office, jails, and county parks. They can also plan for construction and land use in unincorporated parts of the county, like the North Coast. And they have the power to set countywide plans, like for addressing homelessness. We wanted to understand what's important to residents in District 3. Since February, we surveyed and interviewed more than 100 residents. We went to food handouts in Santa Cruz and Davenport, the downtown Santa Cruz Farmers Market, a Santa Cruz Works tech meetup in Beach Hill, the Westside Farm and Feed in Santa Cruz, two Davenport businesses, and the Davenport Post Office. We also had a survey on our website. We asked everyone, what do you want the supervisor candidates to talk about as they compete for your vote? Most people told us about a need for affordable housing and rent assistance. Sierra Oriel lives on the North Coast. She's registered to vote in District 3. She works at the Davenport Post Office. I've lived here my whole life, but I'm 35 still living at home. <laughs> so yeah, I've lived here my whole life, but I've lived in the same house for 35 years and hope to stay in it until I pass away, whenever that may be. But I just see people coming and going all the time, and it's sad. Sierra earns about $27 an hour. She says she feels that wage is fair, but it's still hard to live off of, she told me. She and her husband pay rent to her parents. They tried to find a place of their own. They gave up. She told me she wants the candidates to focus on affordable housing. I've tried the whole moving away, living on my own, and it's just too much. I mean, what they're asking for even just the smallest closet-sized apartment is a laugh. I mean, it's literally a laugh. So, yeah, I would say that's probably one thing they really need to focus on is getting it where cost of living again for anybody is reasonable. We heard a range of ideas from residents on what types of housing should be built in District 3. We heard about tiny homes, in-law units, market rate housing, and deeply affordable units. Some people called for more housing development, including market rate. Others wanted only affordable housing, no market rate. We heard from Elizabeth Morris. She's a designer, she's 25, she lives in Santa Cruz. She wants local leaders to build affordable housing near jobs and bus lines. She wrote, quote, I want a candidate who has come to terms with the realistic fact that Santa Cruz is growing and we need to handle the population influx with grace, foresight, and efficiency, end quote. Santa Cruz resident Deborah Lindsay, a tech executive, told us she wants rent control and more in-law units. She said she knows a lot of people who have lived in Santa Cruz for a long time and can no longer afford it. She said, quote, that's including professionals that make decent money, people who can afford a Tesla, 
but not a house, end quote. A few Santa Cruz residents said they were concerned about water supply. They were worried it might not be enough to support new housing and population growth. I also spoke with more than 30 people who relied on a food bank. I met them as they waited for grocery handouts. I went to Barrios Unidos in Santa Cruz, Nueva Vista Community Resources in Beach Flats, and the Davenport Resource Services Center. I met house cleaners, restaurant workers, caregivers, farm workers, construction workers, laundromat attendants, and meal center volunteers. Most were Latino and spoke Spanish. Nearly all said that rents are too high. Wages are too low to afford rents here, they told me. Margarita Bonilla lives in Santa Cruz with her family. She works in a restaurant. She's 47. Her husband lost his construction job during the pandemic. The standard of living here is too expensive. Yeah. One room, one room, a thousand dollars. And they make the minimum. Yep. And they have a family. And the money is not, it's not enough because everything is expensive. Food is incredibly high. The gas, forget it, is so high right now. Everything, everything. I heard similar stories from other parents, like Erica Rosales. She's 23. She lives in Santa Cruz with her toddler. Erica works part-time in a restaurant. She earns $15 an hour. She wants to work more, but childcare is too expensive. She pays $1,500 a month for a studio apartment. She says most of her money goes to rent and childcare. Several people at food distributions told us how hard it is to find work, like Jose Rodriguez. He's 65, he lives in Santa Cruz. He works odd jobs when he can find them. He does construction and landscaping. He applied for single room affordable housing. He's waiting to hear back. For now, he sleeps in his truck. He pays rent to a friend so he can cook meals and take showers at her apartment. The pandemic has made it harder to find work, he says. A lot of families are without rent, with nothing. We, we, need, we need apartments for low income. These are the top needs we heard from District 3 residents in order of frequency. Affordable housing, rent assistance, long-term solutions for homelessness, higher wages, and improved transportation options. On the North Coast in Davenport, several residents told us they wanted better road maintenance and improved cell phone service. Davenport and North Coast residents also told us about a need for more law enforcement. Let's meet the District 3 County Supervisor candidates. If you live in part of Santa Cruz, Davenport, or the North Coast, you can vote for one of these candidates in the June 7 election. This is a primary election. That means a candidate wins if they get more than 50% of the vote. If no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote, then the top two candidates face off in the November 8 election. There are three candidates for the seat, Amy Chen Mills, Justin Cummings, and Shebra Kalantari-Johnson. I interviewed them in March. 
We'll start with some get to know you questions. Then we'll ask each candidate the same six questions. These questions are based on the top priorities we heard from District 3 residents. Because Justin Cummings and Shebra Kalantari Johnson serve on the Santa Cruz City Council, we'll also press them on their voting records. Amy Chen Mills is 53. She lives on the Upper West Side of Santa Cruz. She runs a coaching and training company. Her company works with schools, local governments, and families. Until 2012, Amy was the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Sustainable Change. It was a national nonprofit network. It aimed to increase civic participation and create change in communities. It closed in 2018. Amy served on the City of Santa Cruz's Community Advisory Committee on Homelessness in 2019 and 2020. It's known as the catch. I asked Amy, what local issues affect you that make you want to run for office? I have two teenage girls and working with the youth climate strikers, you know, breaks my heart, you know, that they feel like they can't grow up in a world that is going to support them and just focus on their families and their working lives. You know, they can't. Um, and so that's really driving me to, to be a leader on the board. I mean, a lot of people I talk to, you know, in my constituency, when I talk about the board of supervisors, they don't even know what that is, you know? And so <laughs> well, there's an $800 million budget in this county. It's almost a billion dollars, you know? And it's, so it's a very important role. And I think that, um, that if I can engage young people in the climate issue, then they will be more engaged in local government as well. And so I'm very interested in that kind of engagement, not just for you know, young people, but for everybody. We should pay attention to local politics. It affects us. What is your dream for the Santa Cruz County community? Well, I would like to see us be a diverse community that is uh, income diverse, as well as, you know, uh, socially and racially diverse. Uh, we are at, in a crisis situation in terms of our income diversity. You know, I've talked to several of my constituents. I ask people when I go to the coffee shops, how are you doing? You know, where are you living? And people are telling me that they're literally either they're driving over the hill to live and come here to work in our coffee shops. Uh, and they're also sleeping in their cars and working here. I asked Amy, What's a fun fact about you that people don't know? So I'm a poet, I'm a creative writer. Um, what else would be a fun fact? My hair used to be bright, kind of bright pinky red before I started running and then it faded out. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just keep the fade out. <laughs> I don't know. Actually Santa Cruz might, might approve of pink hair, you know, at the, at the Board of Supervisors. We definitely need some color. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Cummings is 39. He lives in downtown Santa Cruz. He's an environmental science educator at UC Santa Cruz. His research has focused on topics from climate change to diversity in science education. Justin is in his fourth year on the Santa Cruz City Council. He served as mayor and vice mayor. His term ends in December. He served as a city representative on several local boards, including the Association of Monterey Bay Area Governments, the Central Coast Community Energy, and the Mid-County Groundwater Agency. I asked Justin, 
What local issues affect you that make you want to run for office? Biggest one is um, housing affordability. So I'm a renter and I have, you know, as someone who holds a PhD and a bachelor's and I've helped to stand up numerous nonprofits in the community that really help around diversity, equity, inclusion, I still find it very difficult to, to live in this town. And the only thing that's really helped me as of recently is um, I recently got a position that has higher pay and I live in a house that where the rent is very low. And so that's helped me to save money. But I know a lot of people who are, you know, teachers and who are essential workers in this community who are getting pushed further and further out. What is your dream for the Santa Cruz County community? My dream for the Santa Cruz County community is that we can have um, more housing stability for everyone, not just people who own homes, but for people who are renters in our community, which means that not only do we have to produce more affordable housing for the very low and low income people, but we also need to have good jobs and housing for um, our middle-class people as well. So really, and then in addition to that, I think above all, making sure that our community is diverse because um, we do see gentrification happening in our community. And we wanna ensure that, you know, people who are low income, um, people of color have opportunities to live and stay in this community. Thank you, Justin. Uh, lastly, what's a fun fact about you that people don't know? Fun fact about me. Um, I'm the six time hot wing eating champ of the parish public house. <laughs> nice. Congratulations. Thank you. That sounds rough. <laughs> Shebra Kalantari Johnson is 44. She lives on the Lower West Side of Santa Cruz. She's a co-founder of Impact Launch. It's a local company that provides project design, planning, and coaching for social service teams. She also runs an independent consulting business in project management and grant writing. Shebra is in her second year on the Santa Cruz City Council. Her term ends in December 2024. She's a city representative on several boards, including the Santa Cruz Metropolitan Transit District, the Youth Action Network Jurisdictional Team, and the Community Action Board of Santa Cruz County. I asked Shebra, what local issues affect you that make you want to run for office? Honestly, homelessness is one of the issues that really I, I'm very much invested in. One of my first jobs out of college was working in the Tenderloin, as I mentioned, with an um, formerly homeless individuals living in Section 8 housing. And frankly, that's what inspired me to shift my educational path a little bit from psychology to social work, um, because I just I saw the importance of systems and policies, everything that's intertwined with homelessness, right? Behavioral health, uh, treatment services, housing policy, and how we approach our land use decisions and housing. Got it. Thank you. What is your dream for the Santa Cruz County community? Oh my gosh. My big, big, big picture dream is that every community member is thriving. That's really, really big picture, right? So then working backwards from that, what does that look like? 
we have a community that's diverse in racial background and ethnicity. We have a community that's diverse in age. We have a community that's diverse in socioeconomic status. What does that look like? We have walkable communities throughout our county. Um, we have active transportation and public transportation that's accessible and available to everyone. We have our young adults and teenagers and youth engaged civically. So that's just touching the surface of it. Got it. Thank you. And what is a fun fact about you that people don't know? Oh, I love to sing 1960s Persian pop songs. <laughs> Where do you sing them? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I sing them. I used to sing them to my kids when I would put them to sleep. I sing them in the car. Um, sometimes I get nudged at family parties. When you see my when you see me muting myself and turning my camera off on city council meetings, I may be singing a Persian 1960s pop song. <laughs> Now let's hear from each candidate on the priorities we heard from District 3 residents. A frequent thing we heard from more than 100 District 3 residents was that they want more affordable housing projects in District 3. What's your plan as a supervisor to bring more affordable housing projects to District 3? Amy Chen Mills. So we have affordable housing needs within our uh homeless population that are somewhat different from people who are like working, have their families together. We have all these different levels of need. And so we need to be looking at county land parcels in terms of where we could possibly build low income housing. My preference is to work with low income, uh, nonprofit housing developers. Uh, and, and I'd be working with housing Santa Cruz County, I imagine. Um, and I actually have a whole parcel list that someone gave me. And, uh, and I think what we have to do is spread these out throughout the county, not just District 3. So we have to look at what, where the land is in District 3. And then once you have county land that you can build on, you have, to be, you have to get your maximum return on that land, right? So if we actually work with a for-profit developer, that means we need to make sure we have a solid covenant for low-income housing or affordable housing. And that's something that I, I would not be interested in working with for-profit developers who we, we can't get really solid agreements from. So, but we, again, we're in an emergency situation. So we really need to look at things that can be quick, um, I think, uh, and where we, we can be ready to go. Same question. What's your plan to bring more affordable housing projects to District 3? Justin Cummings. As a council member, I've strongly supported um, affordable housing in the city of Santa Cruz. And as a county supervisor, I intend to work closely with the city to assist um, in providing uh, additional needed affordable housing. Justin has not always voted in favor of projects with affordable housing. Neither has Shebra. We'll get into their voting records in a bit. And I'd say one other thing, as I mentioned earlier, I would in my first year prioritize working with county staff to bring forward an item that would allow us to increase the inclusionary affordable housing percentage from 15 to 20% in the county for new developments as well. An inclusionary rate sets the number of affordable housing units that developers are required to build. 
An inclusionary rate of 20% means that in a new housing complex, 20% of the units must be offered at affordable rents or prices to people with lower incomes. I asked Justin what he would do to develop affordable housing projects in District 3. Well, I would be reaching out to um, developers of all types. So, you know, market rate developers and also not, but most importantly, nonprofit um, affordable housing developers to really see like what are the, the things that they need in order to make affordable housing projects um, come true. And so that if that's, you know, funding, land, you know, really trying to figure out how we can make those projects happen. I met with um, residents in Davenport. And one thing that they've expressed around the Semex plant is, you know, the potential for developing affordable housing there. So really wanting to work with, you know, the Coastal Commission, nonprofit developers, the community to see if, you know, there's the potential for affordable housing to develop there. What are some of the things that are preventing that from happening and how can we overcome those obstacles? Same question. What's your plan to bring affordable housing projects to District 3? Shebra Kalantari-Johnson. You know, District 3 is interesting because the majority of the district is the city of Santa Cruz. And the Board of Supervisors uh, don't, we, we don't have jurisdiction over the city's decisions. Now, I, should I serve in the role of supervisor, I will continue to work with my council colleagues so that the city continues to make smart housing decisions. Um, and I will work with my supervisor colleagues because I think the city of Santa Cruz and the city of Watsonville really have taken the load of building housing and affordable housing. We need to do it throughout our community. There's a lot of opportunities in other districts throughout our county. And then really focusing on um, building of things like ADUs and tiny homes, ensuring that ADU processes are, there aren't red tapes, um, but really holding our entire county accountable for building. We have an opportunity with a revise of our housing element. And after we accomplish that, really looking at our zoning ordinance, that's very outdated. And in general, Kara, I think we have a lot of work to do in our planning department. Um, there's a very, this isn't to point fingers at anyone, but there is a bit of an entrenched culture that is very outdated. So I think, you know, I think we need to think about um, shifting how we approach things in the planning department so that we're not putting roadblocks up, but that we're, we're making building the right kinds of projects in our community easier. Can you be a little bit more specific with that? Yeah, the, the, there have been policies that are have been put in place over the last decades that are there for the purpose of slowing growth. Um, and, and, and I understand the significance and importance of why they were put there at the time they were put there. There were environmental concerns that are very real. Um, but I think an unintended consequence has been that we can't do any kind of development anywhere. And that's really impacted our value of having a inclusive and diverse community. That's impacted our value of allowing people who are, who this is their home to be able to stay here. As I said, it's our, our zoning ordinance is outdated. I, I, I don't think I'm alone in, in identifying that. And, and we have an opportunity right now as we develop our, as we revise our housing element. 
Many District 3 residents told us they, or someone they know, need immediate help to pay rent. They can't wait for an affordable housing project to be developed. What will you do as a county supervisor in your first year to expand rent assistance programs? Where could that money come from? Amy Chen Mills. So I was assuming you were talking about like Section 8, for example, as a rental assistance program. Yeah, that's one example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our Section 8 list is closed. <laughs> you know, we don't have any Section 8 housing. So one thing I think we need to do immediately for all the people who are on the waiting list, it's a huge amount, maybe it's 8,000 people or something, um, is to educate landlords about um, Section 8 housing. And there, there's a lot of information already um, at the Housing Authority uh, about Section 8. And there also are um, incentives for landlords. I had a Section 8 renter in our house for a while. Um, and we were living in the back. We have an ADU in the back, and uh, and it was fine. It was, you know, we got the check uh, on time every month. Landlords need to know that. I know that the housing authority is putting out that kind of outreach. Also, just immediately, um, there is still rental assistance assistance from the California COVID nineteen fund. Uh, however, I think that might be more for back rent than for future rent. I'm not sure. So in terms of what else can we do? I mean, we could um, try to uh, put together our own sort of section eight program, like a housing choice voucher for people who um, are paying more than 30% of their income for rent and need assistance. So there are such things. Um, I've been looking into it. Uh, you need to have multiple funding sources for that. It's expensive and you need to decide whether it's gonna be short-term or long-term. Um, I think that there is an immediate emergency need. We do have state money coming down the pike for um, affordable housing and also for health and human services, as well as federal money. So we have to see if how that money is earmarked, right? How can we spend it? Just to clarify, the Section 8 program Amy referred to is now called the Housing Choice Voucher Program. They changed their name. The program is run by the Housing Authority of the County of Santa Cruz. Families can apply to get a voucher from the housing authority. Then families must find a landlord who will take the voucher. If they can, then the family pays 30% of their income toward rent. The housing authority pays the landlord the rest to a limit. The problem for many families is finding landlords who will take the voucher. Amy, Justin, and Shebra all mentioned the California COVID-19 Rent Relief Program. It's also known as Housing is Key. It's a state-funded program. During the pandemic, it's been the largest source of rent assistance in our county. The problem is the state has been slow to process the applications. About 3,400 households in our county applied. About half have received money as of April 7. The application window closed March 31st. When that window closed, so did a state moratorium on evictions. So residents who lost jobs during the pandemic could face eviction in April. Let's hear from Justin Cummings. What will you do in your first year to expand rent assistance programs? Where could that money come from? You know, I think one of the most important things is that we're ensuring that the programs that distribute these funds are operating in a way that's efficient 
and effectively getting the money to residents. We're seeing that right now with the COVID-19 relief where many people have applied for rental assistance and the rental eviction moratorium is gonna end on the 31st. So this is a you know an example of where there is available funding, but the program isn't efficient at getting the funding to the people. And so that is probably one of the number one things I wanna focus on is making sure that these programs are effective at getting the money that we allocate to the people who need it. The state, you know, when we think about the state budget, um, we know that this year there is a, a surplus and that there was a lot of money that went towards homeless programs. And, you know, one of the things I think that my role would be moving into the next budget cycle would be to advocate for more funding to go towards rental assistance uh, from the state so that we can use these uh, funds and allocate them towards rental assistance for residents. And I guess lastly, you know, evaluating how many people are applying for rental assistance, who is getting it, um, who is eligible and who's being turned away is something that's also important because I think a lot of our programs target the very low and low income people, but there are a lot of, um, you know, working class people in this community who need, you know, assistance with just down payments. Same question. What will you do in your first year to expand rent assistance programs? Where could that money come from? Shebra Kalantari Johnson. Well, we were, we were just facing this right now, uh, the supervisors and the city council with this eviction moratorium cliff that is right around the corner. Um, you know, I think this is an area that the state has really failed. They made a promise and didn't deliver. So I would... Well, currently as a city council member, and then should I have the role to as a supervisor, um, work my relationships with state legislators, um, push on the governor to really meet the promise that they gave. So that's that's one tier of it. Um, the other thing is I would continue to invest in our local organizations that provide these services, right? And that's something that we are going to do as a city. So the, the county board of supervisors, I'm sure you are aware of, just allocated 500,000 towards rental assistance and mediation and legal services. The city is going to look at also contributing to that pot. So how can we provide resources either through these special circumstances or through our community programs committees, um, working in lockstep and in partnership with these organizations through COPA, community bridges, community action board, uh, to make sure that they have the resources and they have the capacity to serve those in the community that need it the most. Shebra told me that the money for local organizations that provide rent assistance could come from the county's Collective of Results and Evidence-Based Investments funding. That's also known as core funding. Other possible sources are federal home and community development block grant money. Next question. Many District 3 residents told us they were frustrated about what they saw as temporary fixes to homelessness. They wanted leaders to address root causes and get people off the streets. What could the county do better to address the root causes of homelessness, especially in District 3? What will you do in your first year? Amy Chen Mills. Well, providing low-income housing is probably addressing the root causes of homelessness. That's not something I really was putting together in my mind when I served on the catch. But now that I've been looking at the housing affordability crisis, I'm realizing just how many people are teetering on the edge and then they just fall over. And I don't think that our 
population understands that so much. We have a view of homeless people as a certain kind of people. And, um, and we need to expand our view. You know, we need to become more educated about our, our population of people without homes at this time. And that's always been, that was in the county grand jury report, public education. Um, when I actually talk to people who live here, they want something done about it, but they also, the one people I've talked to so far are not interested in further criminalizing the homeless. I, that's not one of my policy positions. It's not a position that I would take. In the cases of people who are behaving dangerously or maliciously or selling drugs, and it's quite clear, uh, then I, you know, then I would say, yes, we should have some kind of a, a, an option for them. And I'm hearing that they're not going into the jail. Actually, if they are, it's for a very short period of time. So I'm interested in expanding like the telecares program, which is the um, crisis emergency management program, which has beds, but not a lot of beds. So could we, could we expand that program somehow with other facilities in the county? or using county land, um, like for instance, where the juvenile hall is, you know, for uh, another sort of a locked crisis management facility, not long-term, you know, you're doing a 5150 or you're doing a 5250. So you're doing three days or you're doing two weeks. But I think it's really helpful to have that time. I mean, I'm, I have friends whose teenagers went to the telecares unit and it was really helpful when they were suicidal. Um, and I've had friends who've gone into a 5150 situation when they were really at wit's end and they were able to figure out, you know, just have the three days to say, oh my gosh, you know, things are out of control. How do I pull this together? Um, and I think we need that in this county. Can you sort of spell it out for me more? Like, what will you commit to doing in your first year towards these sort of like longer term uh, solutions to homelessness? I would say that the the reason I was interested in county lands is where can we put some some folks, right, who need support services, similar to what's happening up at the um, armory. You know, that was my idea. And the catch is why can't we have these um, transitional housing uh, programs, even if it's managed encampments, which are better in my mind than unmanaged encampments um, up throughout the county, you know, not just you know, Santa Cruz was dealing with the bulk of it. So that's what I would be looking at. How could we expand those programs to house people who are now living along the San Lorenzo River and in those areas? Same question. What could the county do to better address the root causes of homelessness, especially in District 3? What will you do in your first year? Justin Cummings. Well, again, focusing on the rental assistance programs and making sure that we have adequate funding to support people who may be facing eviction with rental assistance, continuing working with the city of Santa Cruz to stand up effective programs that have, the programs have timelines and outcomes to help people ex experiencing homelessness to get out of homelessness. I believe we need to have a targeted approach to address the needs of the different housed population, unhoused populations, so that we're ensuring that services and are being targeted towards specific needs. Working to increase the number of beds and services for people who are experiencing substance abuse so people can get off the streets when they need help and are not just left and subject to, to you know, this perpetual cycle of addiction. And, but I think most importantly is that we need to continue to be aggressively seeking uh, additional state and federal funds to provide uh, permanent supportive housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. And then I will say that there has been a huge push for 
24-7 non-law enforcement emergency crisis response. Uh, we see that the you know, 988 number is going to be coming online and that there's a big push uh, in the community to move towards that. Um, I've been working with um, many community members. I recently made a motion to include uh, working with the county on that program in our uh, homeless action plan. And as county supervisor, would want to work with um, local uh, homeless advocates, behavioral health care providers, sheriff's department, and law enforcement in the community to make sure that we can address the concerns and make that program come forward in a way that's going to benefit our community. And so I see this as an opportunity to, um, one, increase the, uh, the, the opportunities for connection between uh, case managers and people who aren't law enforcement with people experiencing homelessness and addiction, and also relieving this responsibility from law enforcement, because too often, you know, when there, when new problems emerge in society, we throw it over to law enforcement and make it their responsibility. And this is a public health crisis, and we need people trained in public health to be responding to uh, the calls related to people who are experiencing homelessness or behavioral and mental health issues. Same question. What could the county do to better address the root causes of homelessness, especially in District 3? What will you do in your first year? Shebra Kalantari Johnson. Homelessness looks different. We have farm workers who are who are doubled up, tripled up. We have um, you know, folks who have had medical conditions where they can't work and then they are out on the street. So it looks different. Uh, what I think we see here, the majority of what we see here, what's visible here in District 3 is unanswered and um, an inadequate response to mental health and substance use needs of our community members. Um, and this is not, again, this is not to blame or point finger, but we have failed big time. We have failed as a nation, we've failed as a state, we've failed as a community. What concrete steps will you take in your first year to do what you can to tackle yeah. these issues? Well, first of all, I think we've passed a um, really solid three-year strategic plan at the county, and we have our homeless action response plan at the city. So diving into those plans and making sure we have the resources to implement them. You know, one of the first things is to take the load off the city. I mean, <laughs> again, the city's really done a lot to address this. Well, the city's done a lot in the last year, I'd say. Um, it's, it's unreasonable to expect that the city puts up all the sheltering sites and all of the safe sleeping sites. Like we've got to look across our county and I'm actually already doing this work. I don't sit on the board of supervisors, but I'm working with my supervisor colleagues to see how we can spread the love of homeless services throughout our county. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there that some of my colleagues on, this, on the board of supervisors are open to that. So that's one of the first things I would do is um, looking at where these, these shelterings and services can be uh, accommodated in other parts of the county. And then the other thing is, which I've already started to do, is work very closely with our behavioral health department and our housing for health department um, to make sure that we bring in the resources that there's a lot of money coming down. And if the human infrastructure bill passes, there um, will be a lot more coming down. So making sure we're sort of shovel ready, quote unquote. Next question. Many District 3 residents told us about their frustration and anxiety about their low wages that don't match the cost of living in Santa Cruz County. Is this a priority for you? 
What's your plan to attract and retain employers to create more jobs that pay enough to live here? Amy Chen Mills. Yeah, this was the most challenging question, I think. <laughs> it's a challenging question. Um, of course, I mean, part of the, the housing affordability crisis has to do with wages. And that's also attached to the national you know, crisis we're having around you know, uh, the wage gap and the income gap in the United States. It's, it's nuts. It's, it's insane. So I'm, I'm very excited to see unionization efforts happening here at Starbucks um, and you know, the, the union efforts of the, um, of the uh, SEIU 521 and their calls for climate action too were exciting to me. I just think that that's something that needs to happen because it's when you have more unions, you have higher wages. Now, how does that address our local economy? Um, I mean, I think that workers need to organize when they can and where they can. So how do we attract um, industry or, you know, services or an economy here that can provide higher paying jobs? And um, what comes to mind in terms of my climate and also I think just the way that Santa Cruz sees itself too and what we, we could really sort of put more effort into is like agro-tourism, agro-ecotourism. Um, we could you know, look at Watsonville and the North Coast in terms of agriculture. And if we had maybe like organic, more focus on organic farm tours. Um, and so I think that's something that we can do with our natural beauty and we already have this tourism economy, but how do we expand that and make it more unique? How do we draw more people here? And so what I'm understanding is the best thing is to look at other communities that have uh, done very well offering incentives for businesses to come and set up shop that are about our size with about our budget and then sort of model our practices after theirs. But I would like to be very careful from a climate perspective uh, an ecology perspective in making sure that these businesses fit, you know, what we want to do with our community and even sort of become a role model. Same question. What's your plan to attract and retain employers to create more jobs that pay enough to live here? Justin Cummings. Yeah, so a lot of the third district residents live in the city. So, you know, one of my big things is working with uh, the city to support their economic development efforts and also seek uh, additional federal funding from uh, the Economic Development Agency for job creation projects here in the third district. Um, in addition to that, you know, looking at the county budget and how competitive uh, we are for county workers in terms of compensation to really see, you know, if we are below the curve, you know, what we want to do is figure out ways that we can make sure that our workers are compensated in a way to where they're not looking at, you know, Santa Cruz County as a training ground to then go to other places that, you know, we're compensating people in such a way that they, that we're able to retain and attract good workers. Um, in addition to that, I think we need to be working with um, the educational institutions within our community, businesses, in our community, to see how we can create pathways for people to go from, you know, high school or college into good paying jobs within our community. And then finally, um, you know, unions are, union jobs are some of the best paying jobs in our community. And, uh, and through conversations I've had with many union members and union workers, you know, a lot of the kind of building a construction trade workforce is aging out. And 
one of the things that I think we could do is really start working with the unions to help um, bolster their apprenticeship programs and attract more young people from our community to go into those apprenticeship programs. Because, you know, we know that those are high, as I mentioned, high paying jobs. Um, those apprenticeship programs, you get paid to be in those programs. And, and so you don't come out of that training with debt. And then you are able to move forward with good paying jobs in our community that we that are, are essential. Same question. Shebra Kalantari Johnson. Thank you. Yes, absolutely a priority. Like I have the support of small business owners. My husband's a small business owner. I run my own small business. Um, and this community is made up of our small businesses and they've really suffered over the last couple of years. So I think in helping support our small businesses, we're going to help support our low wage workers and create jobs. So I think, I think that's got to be a focus across our county. Um, you know, there's, there's, not a whole lot we can do in terms of cost of housing, except for build more housing. <laughs> um, and I know there are differences in opinions on that, but I truly believe if we build up our housing stock, we can address that. Um, so supporting our, our small businesses, making sure that they are thriving so that they are offering jobs, that's one way. And then also looking at it holistically, like what are all the things we can do to reduce the, the bills that are coming across low-wage workers' desks and tables, right? Um, childcare, subsidized childcare is a big one. That's something that I strongly support. Um, you know, making sure public transportation is meeting the need, relevant, and is accessible. That's another big one. Um, having access to things like library programs and after-school programs. Again, the Children's Fund provides scholarships to low-income youth. So making sure that families with teens have a safe space and safe proactive activities in the community for their teens to go to. So really stepping back and looking at what are all the ways, what are all the social determinants of health, all the ways that we can help support low-wage earners in our community. Certainly making sure there's a pipeline of jobs and then making sure our, our businesses are thriving so there are jobs, but also just all of the other extras that add to people's plates. Next question. North Coast residents told us they wanted fixes to poorly maintained rural roads, more law enforcement, and better cell phone service, especially during emergencies. You would have some authority to fix these issues, What's your plan to address these issues? Amy Chen Mills. Well, I know about the cell phone service issue um, and I am not clear what's happening like with the cell phone tower providers. I've got a call into Ryan Coonerty to try to talk with him because I imagine he knows sort of best what's going on and what's possible up there. So, I mean, certainly I would weigh in with the cell phone uh, tower providers. People are feeling very scared uh, living up there. In the meantime, there, is a, there are a lot of ham service uh, operators springing up, and I, I support this. I wonder if it's something that the county could help with, you know, maybe offering trainings and subsidies. Um, and the reason I do support these things is because I, I'm not, it's not like we had a fire and now we're going to get back to normal. I want to get back to more law enforcement and better maintained rural roads. What's your plan to address those? Well, I've heard about law enforcement as well. I, my understanding is that's the county sheriff's office that would respond. Um, 
And I, I can see a win-win in this situation. The county sheriff's is already working with like mobile response team members. I think one, maybe two have been added on. Um, and there are people in our community who would like to see a, a program like a mobile response unit that can go out in lieu of a sheriff or police officer. And actually, I think that that would be helpful for everyone because it would take some of the uh, service burden off of the sheriffs to, you know, they should be responding to really, truly dangerous situations and serious crimes. But if we have a mobile response unit uh, at the county sheriff's office, that means that, you know, if there's people who need them in Bonnie Dune, there'll be, there, there will be more time. It's also a less expensive program as I understand it. Um, and so this is where I'm seeing kind of a win-win, um, you know, I haven't talked to Sheriff Hart yet about it. <laughs> Just to clarify, you're talking about um, expansion of MERT, the mobile emergency response team that sends uh, fans out. That's what's happening now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I thought they went with the police. They can respond independently of the sheriff's office right. is but what I can like understand. Eight to five or something. Yeah, it's yeah. only during day hours. Yeah. And roads. And roads. Um, you know, I've talked to Zach friend about roads. I, I don't know what the situation is with the roads up there, except that they're poorly maintained, right? And my understanding is that either you can fix all your potholes and use your money for that, or you can get a new street, but you have to kind of give up on the potholes for a while to get the new street. So again, I feel like I need to talk to Mr. Coonerty and maybe the people in, you know, in planning and, and transportation to figure out what's going on with the budget there. Same question. North Coast residents told us they wanted fixes to poorly maintained rural roads, more law enforcement, and better cell phone service, especially during emergencies. What's your plan to address these issues? Justin Cummings. So in terms of law enforcement, I'm aware that the, county, the current county supervisor has worked hard and successfully to increase the sheriff's presence on the North Coast. And I intend to continue that support and if possible to extend the responsiveness um, as for roads, um, I intend to continue the aggressive efforts of the third district office to secure the maximum funding to repair the roads, especially those that have been um, damaged by the CZU fire complex. And as far as cell towers, I'm aware that uh, there's significant federal money that will soon be available to extend broadband in the county. And I intend to ensure that the third district gets its fair share of that. Same question, Shebra Kalantari Johnson. Right, well, first I'll share that um... I feel very much a part of the North Coast community. My kids have gone to school at Pacific Elementary in Davenport since preschool. Um, I also am very connected to folks up in the North Coast. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. I have a pretty strong relationship with our sheriff's office. I've done a lot of work with our sheriff's office in the past through my grant writing work. Um, I've been endorsed by law enforcement, and I'm going to use those relationships to make sure that we have adequate coverage on the North Coast for all of the challenges that, that happen on the North Coast. Shebra mentioned her endorsements from law enforcement. She has the endorsement of the Santa Cruz Police Officers Association. As of April 10, the Deputy Sheriff's Association of Santa Cruz County has not voted on an endorsement. The Sheriff's Office is the law enforcement body that serves the North Coast and Davenport. Shabra also weighed in on cell phone service on the North Coast. 
Cell towers in Bonnie Doon has been a controversial issue. Some residents have opposed cell towers because of potential health concerns. In February, a communication company applied to install a new cell tower in Bonnie Doon. It would be on Summit Drive near Empire Grade. The application is under review. That's according to a county spokesman. So I'm committed to making sure that we have internet connectivity. I've already started to work with our local internet provider, Kuzio, to understand the complexities of it. Um, I know that there is a, um, a program that the county is, is pursuing right now with pockets of our community that have low internet connectivity. I would push for Davenport in the North Coast and Bonnie Doon to be up in the front of that line to be connected to those resources. Okay, would you support a cell tower in Bonnie Doon? I mean, I, I think the quick answer is yes, but we need to do it in a way that's respectful to the community needs and desires. Shapra also weighed in on road repairs. Roads, ugh, roads is a big problem in all of our sort of rural areas. You know, I think one of the things that needs to be done is uh, bringing in the resources for infrastructure needs. Um, there's money right now that's coming through the federal government with the infrastructure bill that's passed. Um, there's money that's coming from the state. So this is something that I would pay attention to and make sure that our county departments are, um, are proactive in securing funds. Last question from residents. Some District 3 residents were concerned about traffic and climate change. Residents want better bike and walk infrastructure and public transit. What projects related to bike, walk, and public transit would you prioritize for District 3? What's your plan to improve transportation options for District 3 residents? Amy Chen Mills. Well, I really support biking. I've been a volunteer for Ecology Action, and I also start. I started with them, working for them when I first got here in the early '90s. Um, and so, I, I very much support like their bike to work week. I also understand, as a mother who lives on top of a very high hill, that not everyone is going to jump on their bikes. Um, and I think we really need to look at the metro system. That's probably one of my first priorities in terms of making sure we get more people hired to be drivers. But I also think that we need to look at how uh, user-friendly is the service. You know, my daughter and I were trying to ride the bus. We were looking at the website and we could not figure it out. So if that's the case, people are not gonna go jump on the bus. How can we make it uh, just easier for everyone to get on the bus and understand the routes? Um, and, you know, my understanding is the metro service is something that you need to get it going to get it going, right? Like you need the ridership to, to increase, but you need routes to get the ridership. So we need to start, you know, somewhere. And now that the students are back, you know, there's more ridership, which is great. Um, but I think we need to look at how to make it work from South County to North County better. And that may be the shoulder lane that's already sort of starting to happen. Um, but making sure also that South County residents can get to their bus stops, you know, and, and get on that bus. So, yeah, I think my priority would be busing, given that the rail trail issue is pretty bogged down at this time. Uh, in general, I support the rail trail, um, you know, it, but in the meantime, we have huge traffic issues on Highway, Highway 1. For the record, all the candidates said their position was no on Measure D. That's the Greenway Initiative. It's on the June 7 ballot. Same question. 
What projects related to bike, walk, and public transit would you prioritize in District 3? What's your plan to improve transportation options for District 3 residents? Justin Cummings. Well, the first example I'll give is the rail and trail, which I've been supportive of since um, I was running back in 2018, and my position on that has not changed. Um, so I would be very supportive of one pushing back against the current ballot measure and then working to continue building the rail or building the, the trail in our community, which we've had significant progress on both in South and North County. Um, and then, you know, really working to um, identify sources of federal funding so that we can create the infrastructure that's needed to bring forward electric rail. Uh, which would be a, a huge benefit to our community, especially as we're built, we're going to be building more housing. We're going to need to have you know more opportunities for mass transit, and I believe that you know an electric rail would be a sustainable um, option and alternative to driving cars in our community. Um, in addition to that, I know that the city used to have a bike share program, the jump bikes, and that was a very popular program that. Um, now doesn't exist, but when it was in operation, although there were there was frustration from community members about you know where bikes were left, um, there was a lot of people in the community who utilized those bikes as a way of getting around, and you know really got a lot of people, myself included, to stop driving cars. So really trying to bring back, and I know that right now there's an effort to make this a countywide program as we as we try to. Um, reestablish the electric bike share program. So um, really want to work on that. And then with the understanding that, um, you know, we, that people really want to have safe abilities to bike, really investing as we're you know, repairing roads into creating safe bike lanes, not, not just the green bike lanes, but, you know, safe bike lanes to the people. Um, so one cars are slowing down in those areas where people are um, frequently biking. And that also, uh, bikers have more safety. Same question. What projects related to bike, walk, or public transit would you prioritize in District 3? What's your plan to improve transportation options for District 3 residents? Shebra Kalantari-Johnson. This is something that as a mom who schleps for kids across town to baseball and soccer and track and whatnot, um, I, I have, I face every day and, and not just slumping around in my car, but having my 14 year old ride his bike to these practices, right? So this is, this is something that's very important to me and my family and clearly to the community. I think, you know, making sure that um, we think for the now and for the future, making sure that our um, rail corridor is accessible and available to us for an alternate form of transportation in the future. Um, while we are thinking ahead, um, continuing to build our bike lanes in the way that we have in the different segments, um, there's, a, there's a lot that we can do with our bus system. You know, I was in a forum last night and this question came up, like, how do we get increased ridership? Like right now our ridership is um, essentially students, university and real college students and those who commute over the hill. And I'll just say I myself, I rode the bus when I was a UCSC student. I rode the bus over Highway 17 when I was getting my master's in social work at San Jose State. I don't ride the bus now because it's really hard for me to get from point A to point B to point C to point D, right? So how can we think differently and invest in our metro system so that it becomes responsive to the community? 
and and the other so the other piece that I know the city's doing is really looking at um, EV infrastructure. I mean, we want to get people out of cars, but if we we're going to be in cars, um, how can we get folks into electric vehicles? Providing incentives um, and uh, the ability for low-income community members to purchase electric vehicles, and then building that out and building that infrastructure out. Now let's talk about the candidates' voting records. We'll focus on Justin Cummings and Shebra Kalantari-Johnson. They both serve on the Santa Cruz City Council. Our goals are to understand how they make policy decisions and how they vote on housing. We'll start with the 831 Water Street project. This project calls for 140 units. 55 to 82 of those units would be affordable. That means that they'd be rented at lower prices to people who earn 80% or less of the area median income. The project has two buildings at four stories and five stories. This project remains controversial. Many neighbors opposed it because of concerns about traffic, parking, bike safety, building scale, and other issues. In October, the council denied the project in a six to one vote. Shebra and Justin voted against it. In December, after changes to the plan and a threat of lawsuit, the council voted again. That time, the council approved it. It was a four three vote. Shebra approved it, Justin voted against it. I asked Justin to explain his vote. Having heard from community members, it was clear that uh, the developer was moving forward in such a way that um, wasn't really taking a lot of the community concern into account. Uh, the other part of it that was really troubling for me was that the developer was constantly coming back with new applications um, and more updates to those applications. And in my opinion, you know, we have timelines and application processes so that people can work to get everything together that they need at one point in time and submit their final application. In addition to that, it was also um, apparent that it's, well, I should, I should say that it seemed as if they hadn't had the financing figured out to actually make that project work. And I know that at one point, um, they were even asking the city to contribute money to help the financing work for some of the affordable units. And so, you know, it, when projects come forward, I can see there being, you know, a way to work that out. But if, if those, if that question hadn't come to the council, for consideration, the application shouldn't be submitted under the assumption that the city is going to help provide the financing for it when that decision had never, or that question had never come to the city council. So the, for me, it was, it seemed like this is not, you know, the way that this project is being put together isn't compatible with the community and it is coming to the council incomplete. I checked with city staff. Last summer, the developer reached out to city staff to ask for a fee waiver. The council never voted on it. There wasn't support for it on the council. The council had limited power to deny the proposal. That's because the developer applied for the project using state law SB 35. SB 35 forces city leaders to use objective standards to evaluate the project. Justin told me that he felt the city had the legal grounds to reject the application. He said that the developers' many revisions to the plans were evidence that the plans did not comply with the city's objective standards. I asked him how the threat of lawsuit factored into his second no vote. 
He told me that elected leaders should take all legal challenges seriously. His time on the council has taught him that lawsuits often lead to settlements. It's hard to predict the outcome, but it's possible a settlement negotiation could have led to a plan that addressed more of the neighbor's concerns, he told me. I asked Chebra about her initial no vote on 831 Water and what changed her mind. Yes, that was the one of the hardest decisions on city council that I've made. Um, you know, I I am in support of smart growth that fits our community. Now, I don't want to do it such that we change the quality of life for our community members who are here. Um, I don't want us to turn into quote unquote over the hill or Southern California. And um, when we don't approve projects and we don't build, this is what we're faced with. We're faced with um, projects that may feel too at scale for the specific location. Um, and it's the state's way of saying, you know, you didn't do enough. So now we're going to do whatever we want. Um, 831 Water, you know, I worked with the developers, I worked with staff, I worked with neighbors um, to see if we can get to a place that would be workable for everyone. And we didn't land there, Kara. We didn't land there. I had strong concerns about the segregation and separate separation of the two buildings, along with among other concerns. Now, what it comes down to is that we find ourselves in the situation that we do because of our past policy decisions. Um, when I had a deeper understanding of what that would mean to continue to deny this project in terms of potentially $8 million that would cost our city taxpayers, I had to make that very difficult decision to change my vote. I checked the $8 million figure that Shebra mentioned. That's how much legal fees and court fines could potentially cost the city. That's if the city were sued and the court finds that the project's denial was in bad faith. The city would be fined if the decision were not reversed. The fines are based on the number of housing units, in this case, 140 units. That's according to a lawyer hired by the city. The lawyer called it a worst-case scenario. I asked Shebra to clarify the issues she had with the project that led to her no vote. Some of the technicalities of the project were of concern, including um, traffic concerns and the egress and ingress where the cars would be coming in and out of Water Street. And the proposal that was put in front of us, um, I think to me and my fellow, a number of my fellow council members uh, weren't addressed adequately. And then when you changed your vote for this, for the second vote, was it that a deeper understanding that kind of the city's hands were tied legally exactly. or was it um, like, oh, this revised proposal, I'm more open to it? No, that's exactly right. The okay. city's were tied. Okay. And we would be facing a significant lawsuit that our city can't afford. I also asked Shebra and Justin about their votes last year on the Riverfront housing proposal. It's a seven-story project. 20 of the 175 units would be affordable. The council approved it in a 5-2 vote. Shebra voted in favor. Justin voted against. I asked Shebra to explain her yes vote. Look, ultimately, I mean, this goes back to what we were saying. 
we have done a terrible job of building in our community. So here, here's where we're at. Um, if we're going to build density housing, it's going to be in the downtown areas. Um, if we're going to activate our downtown so that we have walkable communities, it's going to be projects like this. Um, saying no to housing doesn't bring in affordable housing. It takes away the 20 units that we would have the opportunity to have, right? So I think some of my colleagues who continue to vote no on these housing projects, um, you got to step back and see the bigger picture. You say no to you say no to 20 because you can't get 22, then you don't get the 20 even. I asked Justin to explain his no vote. At the time, he said that he wanted city staff to negotiate with the developer to set aside some units for people with housing choice vouchers. One way that we know we can, you know, in terms of one program that exists that can allow us to increase affordable units or increase people who need affordable housing is Section 8. And at the state level, the state has now made it illegal for people to discriminate against Section 8 voucher holders. However, we historically know that if, if someone is a tenant and their landlord does something that is illegal, whether that's a notice to quit or kick them out, it is the burdens placed on the tenant to file a lawsuit. And so they have to hire an attorney, um, sue the landlord and take them to court. And people who are low income, that's extremely difficult for them to do. And you know, the developer at the time, you know, was really saying, well, it's up to the city. And you know, I think that we need to be pushing forward with um, creating laws that will increase the use of Section 8 housing vouchers and increase affordable housing. Because what we've seen is that if it's not, if there's no legal implications, then developers are less likely to do it. I talked to Justin about his votes on a couple other housing projects. Shebra was not on the council yet. In 2019, Justin voted in favor of the 190 West Cliff project. That's a housing complex proposed on the Dream Inn parking lot. The council approved it in a 4-3 vote. The project had 10 affordable units out of a total 89 units. At the time, Justin said he wanted to, quote, increase affordable housing to the maximum extent possible, close quote, but he was worried about legal challenges. Justin told me he spoke with the city's legal team. If the city denied the project, the city likely would have been sued, and the city would have lost, Justin said. Alternatively, you know, voting in favor of that project, it would then go to the Coastal Commission, and then the Coastal Commission would need to be the one who would weigh in to determine whether or not that project met all the requirements. And by doing so, that took the burden of, of uh, disputing that project, um, that burden off the city. The project remains stalled. Four residents and a neighborhood group filed a series of appeals to the Coastal Commission. That was in November 2019. The Coastal Commission has not yet weighed in on it. In 2020, Justin voted in favor of the new downtown library project. It calls for affordable housing and a garage as well. At the time, it called for a minimum 50 affordable housing units. The council approved it in a 4-2 vote. The project had many supporters, but also many opponents. Many people did not want the garage. They wanted a library renovation instead. I asked Justin to explain his yes vote. 
obviously this was a very controversial item and and I was kind of the the swing vote on that item and I thought that what would be really important is that you know rather than move in either direction let's bring it out to the community and really have a good understanding of if we renovate what's that going to look like if we build a mixed use what can that look like because when I was running for office um, I was under the impression, you know, it's going to be a, a, a six-story parking garage with 600 new spaces on top of a library, which I still to this day don't think is something that would be good for the community. As a, a subcommittee member, we met with uh, the library director and after receiving all its input, went through, you know, which of these projects would be best. And we unanimously agreed that the mixed-use project would be the best. And we and part of that was because we also saw that there was the potential to build affordable housing on that site and have a library and have, um, you know, some parking, which we were able to reduce the spaces from 600 to 400. And so, you know, thinking about how can we, you know, come together as a community and really maximize the benefit, that seemed like a good direction to go in. The downtown library housing and garage project today calls for 100 to 125 affordable units. I asked Justin to summarize how he has voted on housing. I'm looking at approving projects that are gonna fit with the community, that are taking community consideration into account and that are maximizing affordable housing. And the policies that I'm interested in moving forward are those that are going to increase the amount of deed restricted affordable housing in our community, because if it's not deed restricted, then there's no guarantee that it will be affordable moving forward. I asked Shebra to summarize how she has voted on housing. Well, I have a 100% voting yes record in my time at city council. Um, that's not to say that there isn't going to be a project that I don't think is a fit for our community. Um, I think we need to think holistically. We need to think about how we make these land use decisions will affect the climate and culture of our community. Um, and in that, I mean, if we don't say yes now, again, we will be slapped by the state and we will be looking at high rise boxes. So that's really influences my thinking. Um, there is a narrative out there that she hasn't seen a project that she doesn't like. <laughs> I know that that narrative's out there. Um, that's not the reality. When I see a project, I take into consideration the needs of the entire community and our needs in the next 20 years, right? I'll work with developers, I'll work with city staff, I'll work with community groups to see where we can make adjustments so that it is a fit for how we want to grow as a Santa Cruz County, as a city of Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz County. Or just to clarify, your 100% vote, uh, you mean that except for that one vote on 831, initial vote, you've approved every project that you've that has come before. And, and I'll, have, I'll say this to you, Kara, you know, by the time it comes to us at the city council, there has been a long process that's already taken place, right? Um, it goes to the planning commission, it goes to the city staff, it goes back and forth, right? So I also have to um, do my homework, absolutely, but also trust in the process that's taken place before it's come to my you know, before it comes across my desk, so to speak. I also asked Shebra about a proposal she made with council members Martine Watkins and Renee Golder. 
Last year, they proposed a ballot measure that earmarked 20% of the city's marijuana tax money for children's programs. City voters approved that measure in November's special election. That was the only question on the city ballot that November. The election cost the city $241,000. That cost is significantly more than what the measure would raise annually for the Children's Fund. I asked Chebra about it. She stood by her vote and the timing of the proposal. She said the cost of the election was worth it to fund children's services. Let's quickly recap how the candidates differ on housing, rent assistance, and homelessness policies. On building affordable housing, Amy Chen Mills wants to focus on county-owned land throughout the county. She said she would work with nonprofit developers. Justin Cummings said he would also work with developers. He wants to explore the potential for affordable housing at the Semex plant in Davenport. He also wants to increase the county's inclusionary rate to 20%. Shebra Kalantari-Johnson wants to build affordable housing throughout the county, not just in District 3. She mentioned in-law units and tiny homes as part of the solution. She also wants to update the county's zoning to allow more housing growth. Since Shebra started her term on the city council, she has had more yes votes on housing than Justin. On rent assistance, Amy Chen Mills wants to create a rent assistance voucher program run by the county. She wants the county to find state and federal money for it. Justin Cummings said he wants to make sure the state COVID rent relief program delivers rent assistance faster. He said he'd also advocate for state leaders to give the county more money for rent assistance. He would also push for more county money to be spent on rent assistance. Shebra Kalantari-Johnson also said she'd push state leaders to deliver with the COVID rent relief program. She would also push for more county money to be spent on rent assistance. On solutions to homelessness, Amy Chen Mills said, developing more affordable housing is key. She also wants to expand mental health crisis services. She supports an expansion of managed homeless camps like the one at the Armory in De La Viega Park. Justin Cummings said his first priority is seeking state and federal money for permanent supportive housing. He also said expansion of rent assistance programs is key. He also wants to increase addiction treatment services. Both Justin and Amy mentioned a need for more alternatives to police response to mental health crises. Shepard Kalantari-Johnson said the root causes of homelessness she'd prioritize are a lack of treatment for substance abuse and mental health problems. She said she'd push for more money for treatment. She supports the county's three-year plan to address homelessness and the city's recent Homelessness Action Response Plan. She wants more homeless services throughout the county, not just in Santa Cruz. So much time and love went into today's episode. We interviewed more than 50 residents all over District 3. We surveyed another 50 plus residents. We do this because we want our election guide to be useful to you. 
we want to understand what you want from the candidates. We do this because we love Santa Cruz County. We believe our local democracy works better when everyone is watching and involved, especially with elections. This work takes time and money. All of Santa Cruz Local's work is free. We're supported by our members. Our members donate starting at $19 a month or $199 a year. I invite you to support our newsroom with a membership today. Go to santacruzlocal.org slash membership. The link is in our show notes. If you use the Patreon app, you can also donate to us there. Just search for Santa Cruz Local. Thank you to all our members. Thank you especially to our highest level members. Elizabeth and David Doolin, Fran Goodwin, Jim Weller, Deborah Seche, Chris Necklison, Patrick Riley, Cove Britton, and Jacob Myberg-Guzman. Thanks to Trimpot for the music. Thank you also to Santa Cruz Local's Natalia Drescher. Natalia helped conduct interviews across District 3. Natalia also helped organize and analyze all our survey and interview feedback. I'm Kara Myberg-Guzman. Thanks for listening to Santa Cruz Local. <laughs>